And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome back to A King's Reign. I'm the host of this series, Andrew Schlecht. It isn't easy being LeBron James coach. I did not want to say anything to him. I didn't want to think I was, I didn't want anybody, I didn't want to show anybody that I was coaching by trying to draw some shit up that wasn't going to work. <laughs> you know, I swear, whatever you're doing, LeBron, you keep doing it. Okay. As Mike Brown details there, I guess the actual basketball part may be easy. The hard part is dealing with all the attention, the scrutiny, the pressure. All of a sudden we get thrown in it and then all the spotlight, everything, the context, the pressure. Yeah, we, we struggled. For an introvert, Eric Spolstra has made a habit of dealing with the pressure of working with legends. In 2008, at just 37 years old, Spo took over for Pat Riley as the Heat's head coach. Two years later, Spo found himself at the center of an unprecedented media frenzy. At the start of that, that first year, you know, we had five times the amount of media attention than my first two years as a head coach. Spo joined David Aldridge for a one-on-one conversation about what it was like coaching LeBron and the unmatched experience of the Big Three Heat era. The thing I wanted to start with you about is that being an introvert, and I, wa- I just wondered how you came to grips with that fact that your life as you knew it was going to be over And you're going to have a different life after the circus comes to town. Your whole life becomes different. And how did you come to grips with that? Took me a little bit of time. There's no doubt about it. I'm, you know, very uh, uncomfortable, you know, with uh, a lot of people in a room, much less, you know, having a bunch of cameras on you and then expectations. Uh, Every press conference was like a Super Bowl press conference. You know, working for Pat uh, definitely helped in terms of the mindset of, being prepared to coach uh, under him in this franchise with the championship expectations that he brought, you know, from day one in 1995. So this is the deal working for Pat. Every single year, you have to wrap your mind around that we're going to try to compete for a title. Even after our first two, my first two years as a head coach, we were successful. We made the playoffs both years, but got knocked out in the first round. I already had an expectation that there was going to be some kind of change. I was hoping it wasn't going to be me, you know, but it was going to be uh, much, a much more committed uh, attempt to try to compete for a title. There's no way any of us could have anticipated this, you know, that we would. So it, it just, it changed like that. And then, you know, LeBron's personality is just larger than life. Yes. The, the context of him being uh, a two-time MVP, the best player on the planet, but it's his personality. He's an extrovert and he, you know, loves uh, to have a fun locker room and have everybody uh, enjoying the season. 
like the interactions, you know, with fans and even with media. I think it changed a little bit, you know, the first year with us. We all had kind of a different perspective on the media, but it was definitely a change to get out of my comfort zone. But I knew, you know, that's what this job was going to require just to be able to face it head on. Uh, not try to duck it, not try to hide from it, not try to make excuses about anything, uh, but just to face it head on. And I think it was good just from a personal and professional standpoint to to face my biggest fears. How did you size him up when you first had him, you know, when you first were meeting with him and talking with him and he was, you know, he had signed, how did you size him up? My first interaction with him was uh, the day we signed him. And then, uh, well, I mean, we recruited him, but everybody's in the room there. And then so we really didn't spend any one-on-one time until we went out to launch. We spent two or three hours, just he and I. And I'll always remember that because I found this to be true throughout our time together. He was about a half hour early to that launch. And he's never late. He's always early. He's always like, if not the first person uh, in the building, he's always right there. Uh, He just likes structure. He likes... uh, you know, promptness, doesn't like waiting around, doesn't like wasted time. Uh, and I learned that immediately, you know, at that launch. Thank God I showed up early too. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, that that would have sucked uh, him waiting, you know, for, for that coach. Uh, but the the level of IQ uh, just in that initial launch and the discussion, uh, how he could see all the chess pieces, um, I thought was just really impressive. Yeah, you know, for somebody his age and and even just the experience that he had. So, was nine and eight even worse than we anticipated than we saw on the outside? I was so overwhelmed, David. Like it's hard to say whether that was like the flash moment or I, I remember that first year we lost five straight home games uh, in the spring. I mean that one felt worse because we are had like you know several months. Everything was so crazy. Uh, at the beginning of the season, we were all trying to get our footing. Um, and Dwayne was injured, so he missed most of preseason. Uh, and so we didn't have those practices or that preseason or uh, those days to kind of all get on the same page and work through, you know, some of the kinks. Uh, and all of a sudden we get thrown in it and then all the spotlight, everything, the context, the pressure, uh yeah, we we struggled. Um, we were pretty much putting together like a defensive mindset. I uh, uh, have a, a team that really focused on that, but offensively, it was disjointed for sure. Yeah. Sorry. I, I always thought that game when y'all went back to Cleveland, because I was at that game, and I've said that's like the ugliest atmosphere I've ever seen in 30 years of covering this league. It was It was beyond ugly. And I thought in some ways, did that galvanize you guys maybe to kind of – come together a little bit for sure we we needed something kind of to draw everybody together now everybody understood why we were together and what we were playing for but you need that emotional trigger you know where where it's where everybody's kind of vulnerable and in that case it was lebron and everybody wanted to make sure that we played well you know for him in that environment and look we've all been in these crazy uh intense and um, awesome playoff environments. Um, you know, whether you go into the, the garden in Boston or whether you go in York, uh, there's just some great atmospheres all, all around the league. Uh, but the, to this day, I had never really felt like that kind of just overall animosity out of a crowd. Uh, 
we walked out there and we ended up that definitely, you know, glued us together. Um, we all kind of had a common enemy, you know, and, and it kind of was that emotional trigger. And then, um, just the eerie silence once we got off to a great start, uh, that they went from that kind of intensity to all of a sudden super quiet it was really, uh, you know, an amazing thing to experience, uh, uh, firsthand. And you guys, I mean, that wasn't the first, of, but at, it was in that time you guys went on this incredible run. I think what twenty one out of twenty two or something like that. Some it was real right sh- after we were nine and eight, and yeah, you know, we we flew back from Dallas. We had Sunday off, and then we were playing uh, Monday. And so, you know, I walked into that shoot around and that post shoot around media session, and basically everybody was talking about what I was going to do after I got fired, uh, and we had a normal shoot around. We didn't even like talk about the bump or like any kind of the noise from the media. We just focused on preparing for that game. And, um, you know, I, I think again, even just that kind of intensity of the dis- distraction and how people just ran with it, it did kind of in an odd way, give us another reason just to come together. Right. You used like, the word noise 7 trillion times a year. And I, and I wondered if that was, was it was there genuine kind of anger or was it just hey this is something we have to deal with as a team and we have to as you put it you have to deal with it head on yeah i think it was important to be able to you got to mention it so you can manage it if you're acting like it's not even there then it's like eating away at you somewhere or at least each one of us may translate all the noise in a different way but i think uh, if you just pull back the curtain and just say it is what it is, that's not going to affect uh, what we have to try to do and develop a process of building a team that can contend for a title. Uh, it can be very distracting. I mean, it felt like uh, that noise, you know, I use that word a lot, but it felt like it was a megaphone. It felt like it was a, a, a speaker the size, of the size of this building coming at you every single day. Um, it, it actually became something that we could laugh about because everything was blown way out of proportion. Uh, things that people thought were a big deal to us were not at all, even on our radar. Um, and you know, it was, it was kind of a growing experience for all of us, uh, to be able to kind of go through that. LeBron had, he's lived his life, you know, always with a, a camera and, and the attention and some, you know, Dwayne, you know, got to that point uh, after winning the championship. But for a lot of the rest of us, it was a life-altering experience to be able to go through this NBA experience in a totally different way where everybody's, you know, picking at you and criticizing you and then and, and just kind of making you feel a little bit uncomfortable all the time. What, but you guys, you know, went through the rest of that season and really blew through the playoffs, you know, in the East and, and certainly looked like you had righted the ship. And so I, and I've talked to Carlisle about this a lot about those finals and just kind of how he was grasping at 2 1. He was grasping for anything to kind of get more pace into it. And I just wonder how you recall that series changing from they seem to have control of this thing to they've lost control of this thing. We didn't have control of it though early on the way we should have though, David. This is what we've always kind of. I wouldn't say regret because I think a lot of the lessons we learned from that Dallas series allowed us to have that next two seasons. Um, and that's, what's unfortunate. Sometimes, sometimes you have to go through the biggest pain to be able to get the biggest lessons. 
but we won game one uh, and then game two. Uh, I remember six minutes uh, on the clock, you know, we get uh, uh, Dwayne three out of the corner right in front of their bench and we go up 15 and it just feels like we're up 2-0. I mean, everybody in the entire building, all of Miami thought it was going up 2-0. And, and even the way we kind of celebrated going back to the bench, uh, it felt like it was game over. And it was, a, you know, that 15-point lead. And then all of a sudden, you know, Jason Terry uh, hits a couple. Then, um you know, they get a, another easy basket and then all of a sudden Dirk, you know, comes alive and then they start running that two man action and it felt like they stole that game. Uh, they earned it because we could not stop them going down the stretch. Uh, and, um, you know, that that gave them now uh, a different perspective going back to Dallas. And we we grinded, you know, um, we ended up getting uh, game three, and then the, the other two games were really hotly contested. Uh, but they started to speed it up, and uh, you know that zone uh, did give us, you know, some hesitation uh, a little bit. It wasn't that we weren't necessarily able to score; just we were hesitating enough. And then they they played some small lineups, and probably if I have regrets to this day uh, about that series, uh, I definitely would have tried to play LeBron. You know potentially at the five and especially when they had uh, Dirk and some of those lineups with the five and let's just see the two MVPs go at each other, you know, with respective lineups or, you know, some more lineups with CB at the five. I just wasn't quite there. The league wasn't quite there at that time. Um, but again, all these kind of lessons kind of paved the way for the next couple of years. Well, but that got you to the, to that next thing. I think you guys were one of the real triggers of, what you've called positionless basketball, but small ball essentially. Right. And so I, and I know that the, the lockout kind of forced your hand in terms of the sabbatical and everything, but what, what were you hoping to kind of unlock when you went and visited with all those coaches during that time? Well, defensively, I, I think we're as good as anybody, maybe in the, you know, in the history, you can put our, our team up there. I'm not into ranking and all that stuff, but our defense, it's great. Uh, you know, and that's the thing about uh, LeBron. He understands that Dwayne, CB, they, they're two-way players, and they understand to win at the highest level, you have to defend. And they've always committed to being great two-way players. That sets the tone for the rest of your team. And we were electrifyingly good uh, in terms of trapping, covering ground, speeding teams up. That's why Dallas, what they did against our pressure and our traps – uh, was so impressive the way they moved the ball, particularly as we got further in the series. Uh, but our offense, guys did not feel comfortable. It, it definitely felt like we were taking turns um, and and trying to put things together just, uh, you know, with the best talent. Um, so I just went to work, you know, just kind of anybody I could meet with just to look at things differently. You know, Chip Kelly was one in, in football, um, and I stole the term pace and space from him. He's really the one that was using that. Um, and that was something that we started to adopt of just really get to, to spacing as quickly as we possibly could play with pace and let the talent take over and then really work you know, the ball movement from that. But the spacing was, was critical. And that's why we started to get to eventually Bosch playing at the five LeBron, some more minutes at the four. Uh, and that just made us a, a lot more dynamic on the offensive end. Now, how did you, did you, 
did you have to script your meeting, your thoughts with LeBron about going to the four? Because you know that wasn't what he really wanted to do. He had never played there before. He was a perimeter guy. How did you kind of try to sell him? Uh, it was really, um, I think, a couple things happened. During the lockout, which had nothing to do with us, Dwayne and LeBron got together. And Dwayne was telling LeBron, like, hey, so we have clarity next year. You're going to be the best player on the planet. I'll figure it out. Like, I'll figure out the offense, but we're bumping into each other. Uh, there's no rhythm and anything, but there has to be, like, some kind of pecking order. So Dwayne, like, kind of helped with that clarity. Uh, and then the second thing, those guys just really wanted to win, and they wanted to make it work where the three of those guys could all be effective. So that was kind of, like, the selling point. Like, okay, we can probably make this effective where you all can feel, like, who you are, where you're not sacrificing everything but we're going to have to bump guys up a position. CB will have to play a little bit more at the five, LeBron a little bit more at the four. Dylan will have to play a whole game that way. And he gets it. He's smart as heck. You know, like you don't have to, you can go through about two sentences of what you're trying to do. And he, he'll nod his head when he's got it. And he's like, okay, I'll make this work. Or if he disagrees, he's going to be nodding. No. And you're going to know right away. Like, all right, this is not going to to happen. We'll have to go a different way. And he was he was fine with that, you know, particularly just in these burst stretches that we would use it kind of like a, a change of pace, you know, just crush a team with speed and move him to the fourth end of quarters or end of the first end of the third and sometimes in the fourth. And he saw the success and and then we just kind of built on it from there. So, I mean, it was the early, an early death lineup, right? I mean, that was your, that yeah. was your death lineup, right? All right. It's like when I saw Golden State do it, I was like, ah, you know, I, I can see why they went to that. And it was, you know, in its own right, obviously so uh, incredible. So that, yeah, that was a version of our death lineup and also it allowed us to get, you know, some of our better players out there on, on, on the court at the same time. We were able to play, you know, Mike Miller and Shane together with the, or eventually when we got Ray, Ray and Shane with them, it allowed us to get all those guys on, on the court. And, and LeBron understood that very quickly. He is, um, well, there's some who would say he's passive aggressive. And I just wondered how he and you handled, not, I don't mean confrontations in the sense that it's going to be a fight or something like that. I just mean, he may think about doing something a certain way. You may think about doing something a certain way. And how did you guys resolve those discussions when they would come up? I think that was like the best thing in terms of he and I, that that first year was going through a season where there was so much scrutiny and there would be so many opportunities for either one of us to kind of like, I'm uncomfortable, so I'm going to point the finger somewhere else. <laughs> you know, Even if it was not to the media, it might just be to somebody else. Uh, and you really get to know somebody. I, you know, we, we've all said this. Like, you get to know somebody's character when you actually go through some stuff. You know, things are not going your way when there's adversity, whatever it may be. That's when your character is going to bubble up, and that's where you know some of all of our, you know, habits that we like or dislike kind of come up. And I think, you know, in some of our discussions that year, it was like, all right, we'll be able to manage whatever. We just have to be able to communicate eye to eye, even if we with each other i don't care if he disagreed with stuff that i'm not going to try to make it work if he wasn't on board but we have to be able to to talk about it 
Um, so I think that helped our communication where it could just be more direct. We learned more about how we communicate. Um, uh, and I found him when to be uh, very coherent um, and efficient with his communication, you know, uh, when things were addressed directly. Uh, he sees, like I said, he sees the the chessboard. He can see moves two or three steps before everybody. Um, you know, so I, I think that was an important uh, year for us to be able to go through that and be under that kind of uncomfortableness uh, just to really get to know each other quicker since we're trying to get something accomplished and you're, you're basically strangers before the season starts. That's, that's not easy for, for anybody when you have to develop these kind of deep levels of trust by the time you get to the playoffs. Well, speaking of the playoffs, you guys, obviously you get to the conference finals again, and I know you're in the moment and you're a moment guy. Like you got to be in present where you are, where your feet are. Right. And I just always wondered, even at that level, is there a part of you that could step back in game six in Boston and go, this is some pretty quality stuff from this guy. <laughs> this is some amazing stuff from this guy. He took the air out of that uh, arena. You know, I think in Cleveland, the first time we went there, it was a little bit different. I felt like the team really stepped up for LeBron. Like, hey, we are not going to let you lose. We're definitely not going to let you get embarrassed. We're not going to let this crowd have their moment with you at all. And I, I felt like everybody was united in that for LeBron. In that game six, it was just the opposite. It was like that death stare that he had. It was just, he was so quiet. There was, you know, a lot of times he can be the loudest voice, you know, as you're preparing and it's great because you need his input and he can kind of, he can galvanize a locker room like nobody have been around. Uh, that pregame locker room, he didn't say a word to anybody. It was the look that just said, follow me. I'll take us to game seven and then we'll figure that out when we get back to Miami. And you felt that uh, immediately. Once he took the air out of the building, it was like, okay, he's got us. The pressure's off us now. Let's just go. Let's go to St. Game Seven in our home and take care of business. Yeah, and and I thought that was the most important game of his career. I, I mean, of all the games he's had, I mean, that was the one. If it goes the wrong way, who knows what people will say, you know? And to do it in Boston, you know, like that's. There's not many people who do that in Boston, you know. And he did it. He did it with his scoring too, which yeah. nobody can remember this at the time. And now, particularly as he's going to break the all-time scoring record, right? <laughs> but uh, you know, in a lot of those moments, uh, you know, he prided himself on making the right play. Yeah. And in, in so many of those moments of truth, the right play was to pass because teams would like really pack the paint. And in that game six, it was more of I'm gonna put this team on my back and I'm going to score. Right. Just to get the pressure off of everybody. And that that's what it did. And so when you get to the finals, you know, it's a diff it's obviously a very different team than you played the year before. What 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 did you guys lean into to kind of gradually grind OKC down over those five games? Well, I do distinctly uh remember that um after each one of the, our, our games that the, a lot of the discussions were that this is the fastest, most athletic series that anybody had been in. Like our team was fast and OKC was arguably even faster. 
there's just the level of athleticism and the pace, uh, even if it was half-court pace, the explosiveness, uh, just the sheer athleticism on both sides of the floor was uh, really incredible. And everybody felt that, you know, right away. Um, you know, we ended up uh, dropping uh, games, uh, game one, and we were up most of the game. And then fourth quarter, you know, they came back and, and got that one. So, of course, that, that creates some level of uh, doubt or whatever, you know, pit in your stomach. But we gutted out a great win in, in game two and and then just start to systematically, you know, try to, to, to conquer, um, you know, that speed. That's that's really what our focus was on, on containing the speed and and making sure everything was on our terms. Right, and and to your point about LeBron as a playmaker, and I know D Wade is a big part of that too. But your ability to find Battier and Miller over and over and over and over again seemed to be the the catalyst, really, to kind of figuring out OKC defensively. Well, one of the ways that we could kind of mitigate that speed that I was talking about. Uh, and this is also as a credit to LeBron really working on it um, because he, he didn't really have any weaknesses, um, but we really started to get him in the post more. And that really kind of controlled the pace at any time in that series. Uh, all right. They're speeding it up too much. They're getting way too much into that flow offensively. They could score as well as anybody in the league. We could just slow all that down by throwing in the post with LeBron, and then they have to figure out whether where they're trapping from, where they're bringing a second defender, and that allowed, you know, Shane and Mike, you know, really step up, Rio, you know, to make uh, make them pay, you know, by playing out of rotations, and he just kind of set up, you know, open shots out of that. That that was just really helpful in that series. Yeah. What oh, do you remember those first moments after Game Five, and just? A lot of people say you feel relief after something like that. You don't really feel joy. And I just wonder what yeah, that was like for you. Definitely more relief. Um, I still was looking at the time, like there's more time, you know, going off. And uh, it was, it was real because that one was, you know, the, the blowout game and, you know, up by 20 plus, I'm acting like it's still a three point game. <laughs> just, as, <laughs> just as being a lunatic. I, I don't really remember much, David, other than UD pouring the Gatorade, you know, pump it over my head. Uh, that kind of that was like a cold plunge. Like, okay, this is real, but it definitely felt more relief than than joy or you know um, those kind of feelings. It did the the sense of I got a plane to land? I landed the plane. This big honking plane that they asked me to land, I was able to land this plane successfully to a good result. Did that, was that in your mind at all? Like I did what they asked me to do. You know, it, it, it's tough. I've been asked a version of that question so many different times. Uh, you know, it, it, it is a little bit different with me in this organization and working for Pat, you know, because I do feel a different sense of stewardship. And all right, this is the job. This is the task. Uh, I don't want to let this group down. I don't want to let Pat down. And, and it got to the point where I really just didn't want to let the players down either. And if that meant me sometimes getting out of the way, like that's also a major part of it. Like let the talent like uh, become who they can be. Uh, so, you know, I didn't really necessarily think of like, all right, uh, I landed the plane, you know, I got this job done. It was more of probably a feeling 
you know, especially at that time, like, all right, at least I didn't F it up, <laughs> you know, like, and we can go take a crack at, at number two as well. We'll hear more from Spo and DA in a moment, but first a word from our sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shea Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dom- Dominic Toretto, I live my life a quarter mile at a time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Before you dive back in, we want to let you know that you can unlock tomorrow's episode today and enjoy this entire series ad-free with a subscription to The Athletic Audio Plus. Unlock that now for just 99 cents a month by clicking subscribe at the top of The Athletic NBA Show's show page on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of A King's Reign. And no title is easy and obviously and obviously not winning a second one is easy as well but you guys did have that that monster win streak in the middle of that next year and i've talked to coaches about win streaks before and and you guys hate them because you have to live up to the streak at some point but was there any did you ever enjoy it to go man we are pulverizing people right now <laughs> like we really oh, are po- no. never no you know what? It, it was the first win at toronto and we stayed uh, over to watch, um, you know, the Super Bowl. And then we, you know, had great fellowship. 
yeah. <laughs> that night and then got on the plane and on the bus. Uh, Shane, you know, gave his uh, infamous uh, or famous uh, speech. Uh, and it was just really heartfelt and funny. Um, and that kind of galvanized galvanized uh, our group. Uh, again, it was something to kind of, uh, you know, come together for. Um, it was just a really kind of a, a random night. Uh, and win, but then probably for the first 12, t- 10, 12 games, it felt like that, how you describe it. Uh, the last 10 for sure just felt like, oh man, this is becoming way more pressure, you know, than, than any of us anticipated. And a lot of those games, we were coming from behind in the fourth quarter and we just have some miraculous comeback, um, you know, to save the day. Uh, but it, it felt like pressure and of all the things probably we've all experienced that might've been one of the toughest accomplishments is to win for two and a half months in this league. There's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of things that can get in the way of that, but to have a group that stayed that focused for that long is as impressive probably as anything that we were able to do together. There was that, that great photo of LeBron throwing the oop behind him to D Wade. that kind of, to me was like, that's them. That's the Miami Heat, you know. Yeah. Um, or do I have it backwards? It was the way throwing the lob to, to LeBron. Wayne, yeah, uh, yeah. The lob and then did right. the airplane. Yeah. Right. Exactly. The camera. <laughs> yeah. LeBron's like uh, triple clutching it to an alley. Right. <laughs> that was like that's them. That's that. That's it that Miami them. Heat. I don't know which one of those collaborations they had was the most remarkable. That was the best photo uh, op. Uh, of all of them, when you look at that, that photo, it's incredible. Uh, Dwayne had one to LeBron, a uh, full court in Indiana, where he just launched it 92 feet, and then LeBron like switched the ball in his left hand and laid it up. Uh, and then the Christmas Day ones, I remember turning to our staff at one point uh, because Dwayne would just not even look, he would just throw it up like behind him, and LeBron would come out of nowhere, you know, for these alley oops. I started to like complain to my staff. I'm like, these guys are just like trying to clown everybody. And my staff, McAdoo and Fizz and even old Ronnie, who's old school as anybody, he just says, have a seat and just enjoy what we're experiencing right now. And the, the time I remember that is when Dwayne threw it off the backboard in LA on Christmas. He'd already just gotten a lob to, to LeBron. It was their classic, just kind of throw it behind his shoulder. And then, we got a steal and LeBron kicked it to uh, Dwayne and Dwayne's way ahead of him. You know, you can see LeBron like just trucking as fast as he possibly can. But if he threw a, a regular lob, it, there's no way it would have gotten it. So Dwayne just chucked it off the backboard. And that's when I was like, where is that going? Like I'm saying that live speed. And then LeBron somehow comes out of nowhere and switches to his left hand to a dunk. Um, there was just crazy plays like that night after night that, um, that just were not normal, but they become they became normalized with the two of them. You expected the, those those uh, connections to happen. That that second run to the and that series, and you and I have talked about about Ray and and his <laughs> ridiculous preparation to be ready to make a shot like that in a finals game. Um, but I am just I'm still amazed. It's still the most amazing shot I've ever seen someone make in that in in in, in that type of pressure situation to have the mental wherewithal to not only 
be able to physically do it, but know exactly where you are on the floor to be able to take four steps and be exactly where you're supposed to be and then have the skill level to shoot to make that shot. I just, I'm just, I'm still blown away by that shot. I just can't yeah. believe he made that shot. Now, I'm not even making this up, David, because I've told this story before. That's literally the very first drill I ever saw Ray Allen do in our practice facility. He would lay down underneath the basket. Coach would be at the top of the key. He would pop up off the floor and backpedal to the right corner, to the same exact right corner that he hit that shot. That was the very first drill I saw him do, and which I had never seen anybody do that uh, before. And, of course, I asked him afterwards because he did it, you know, 25 times or, or in each corner. And he said that was part of him developing his balance and his spatial awareness of to be able to back up on an offensive rebound and understand how to get his footing right. Uh, it was more of a footwork drill for him and to not step out of bounds, which you see how, how many times, like so often players will step out of bounds on that play. So he practiced it time and time again. And it was probably just so fitting that that was one of the plays at the very end of the season. A lot of people think that that's what game, won game seven, but it was game six. It was game Actually, six, right. <laughs> overtime, we still had to kind of do an, an overtime. To be able to right. Game seven, but, you know, right before that too, we were down five and LeBron hit a big three, a big three uh, just to get it to two. You know, otherwise that would have been a free throw game and they they would have won the title. Right. Right. No, you mentioned game seven. Nobody remember. Well, said nobody remembers. Lots of people don't remember game seven, how tight that game seven was and back and forth and back and forth. And again, you know, LeBron made some monster plays down the stretch to kind of persevere for you guys. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think the, the things that stand out to me that I still remember was how uh, exhausted the players were by game seven, mentally, emotionally, physically, uh, it was so contested. Um, and then it got to a point where both sides were just trying to get a shot and crash as many people as possible. <laughs> that was the best opportunity to get an offensive rebound. You weren't clean looks just at running your normal offense. So that's why we really tried to just simplify it. And we were just kind of running post-ups with LeBron, bringing it up on the left wing, backing it in and just trying to create a trigger that way. Uh, but I think also, that important last jumper he had to seal the series and the championship was a play that's kind of like innocuous because we we all know now LeBron, if you try to go under on him on a pick and roll now, he's going to hit a – he can even go to 26 feet and bury you with a, a killer shot like that. But at that time, that was the shot that the league had said, all right, we'll live with this. If you're going to win, you're not going to get in the paint. You're not going to get the rim. You're not going to get a free throw line uh, to get to the free throw line. You were going to give you this show and under pick and roll jumper, and you got to prove that you can make it. And he had really worked on that diligently, um, you know, for a couple of years. And I thought that it was awesome that uh, that was the one that we won the, the title on. Yeah. And, and if the first one was relief, was the second one at all joyful or more joyful? Uh, I don't know. I think both of them felt, you know, like relief. And and that's why, you know, the further you get along in this business, you just realize you just want to be a part of those kind of special experiences with a group where you can commit to something that's bigger than yourself. And then ultimately have those memories and experiences of being tested at the highest level when there's incredible doubt and you overcome things collectively. That's, that's really what it's all about. 
that's the ultimate uh, in this profession. When it actually happens, you feel whatever. There's no wrong way to feel it. Uh, but I know from my standpoint, I've I've talked to you know a lot of the players that a week later you almost feel like an emptiness and almost like a, a depression because you still want to like. I was dreaming uh, that we still had a game eight. Game eight, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and and you want to still like you know, even though you don't want to, you just those experiences are so uh, deep and they reside so deep with your emotions and memories that. Uh, they're much different than a normal experience, a normal NBA 82 game experience where you don't make the playoffs. Someday we'll talk about tanking, uh, <laughs> just how corrosive and insidious it is. Um, but uh, Kerr, I've talked to Kerr about this and he's talked to other people about it too, just about how after you've won a much, a bunch of titles in a row, you, it doesn't, you can't keep doing it. Like you, you're exhausted. You're, you're spent. You just don't have any more left to give. And so I wonder, do you think that at that following year, regardless of what LeBron decides to do afterwards, that that group that you had together had given everything it could over that four year stretch? Yes. The emotional toll is what you can't really account for. Uh, everybody gave everything uh, they had and more uh, to be able to, you know, set our intentions of trying to to compete uh, against a league that adapts. And if you win one, then everybody else is like doing what you probably did, and they're they're uh, gearing up to take you down. That, that has an incredible emotional toll. The playoffs end up being you know two plus months. And the level of intensity is so far greater than anything in the regular season. Um, it's really hard to to explain that. Um, but even that year, uh, I just think, and I'm not saying that we would have beaten anybody else because you, you just don't know. But the worst team for us to play was San Antonio. They had a mountain-sized rock in their shoe the entire season. They had not forgotten uh, about how they had control of the series. Uh, and I think Pop... And their team just did a, a tremendous job of using that as fuel instead of allowing it to like tear them down and break them apart or lose whatever. They came back so much stronger and so much better uh, that, yeah, it probably would have helped us if they would have been beaten by somebody else that they didn't have. That KC. <laughs> Anybody. And I'm not disrespecting any other team. It's just that was the worst team for our group to play against. Um, but you know, it still also could have been different. That sweat game and the the first one where they didn't have AC conditioning in there. I think we were in control of most of that game until the fourth quarter, and then they came back and and won that one. We we potentially could have been up two zero going back to Miami, and maybe that changes things. But they were they were incredible. They were so focused and committed, you know, to winning a title that year. Yeah, I, when Timmy we had we did the Western Finals and Timmy. Post game after they beat OKC says we're going to go to we're going to play Miami we're going to beat him and I went well that's that's unusual for Timmy to say that <laughs> like that you know like like he doesn't say anything you know right yeah 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 um I just and I know that I, I don't want to keep you because I know you've you've given me way more time already but I just wonder if they're 
Well, I want to ask you one thing. You said something the other day that I thought was really interesting. You said when LeBron was there, you noticed how neat his locker was. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was that's an interesting observation to make. And I just wonder well, why that stuck know, out. Because how you do anything is how you do everything, right? Uh, and you could certainly say this, and I say it uh, as a, the ultimate compliment. You could definitely say LeBron James is obsessive compulsive, <laughs> you know, about everything. Um and at the highest level, that's what you want uh, out of your best player is to be obsessed compulsive about winning, which LeBron James is. Uh, but in terms of always being early, having a clean locker, he also didn't like other people having messy lockers around him. You know, because that messed with his, his space. His feng shui. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But he, you know, in, in our time together, he was never late, you know, for anything. That, that's not even, it was never even like on the radar, you know, with him. And, and so many of those kind of little things that, that, you know, young players kind of overlook. Whenever I meet with a young player, I mention those things about LeBron, not the spectacular plays or the MVPs or the championships. It's about all the little things that lead up to that. You know, taking care of his body year round. You know, he maybe takes two or three days off in the off season, and he's right back at it. It might not be training camp levels, but he never gets out of shape where he has to get back in shape. He's always kind of maintains. And now you are seeing a younger generation that's more cognizant of year round training, of working on your craft, of coming back and adding something to your game. and all of those things, LeBron was kind of ahead of the game. Uh, and those are great lessons that I use in my locker room. And I, I always will. Um, I'll be telling those stories forever. Yeah. I I, will, I want to close with this because I, I just wonder what your, you know, what your experience as a human being and not necessarily as a coach, how it was impacted by being around LeBron James for four years. Well, we can probably tie it back to the beginning of this conversation that, one, I was able to face my fears of spotlight, of attention, of um, anything where I can't just kind of hide behind the scenes. Um, That was number one, and I think it is good to face your fears. Uh, And then number two, uh, he just has a great way of enjoying uh, not only life, but an NBA season and a locker room. He brings such joy um, and lifts up a locker room. He, like I said, he knows how to galvanize a, a group uh, and and have fun. Uh, and I think that lesson, you know, is something that I've taken with me in my coaching. That I, when I've had different teams now, I do want, yes, we have to, be the Miami heat and we're always going to work to be the best condition, hardest working. Um, but we also can have some fun and have fun in the locker room and make it an experience. You know, when we're together six, eight months, um, that these will be memories and relationships that we'll be able to cherish, you know, forever. That'll be long lasting and, and transcend, uh, you know, just our time together in, uh, in the league. Thank you for listening to A King's Reign. In the next episode, The Banana Boat. I can't believe this is my life. Taco Tuesday! The No Dunks crew runs through some of the most memorable LeBron memes. 
Rob Peterson is the editorial supervisor and creator of A King's Reign. Joe Varden is the consulting producer. Kent Garrison is the theme music composer. Reporting for the series was provided by the Athletic NBA staff. Andrew Schlecht is the host of the series. Matt Havia and Mike Smeltz are the executive producers. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.